Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Why does Kickstarter get to decide what a zine is? That's like, and that's antithetical to zine culture in general. So if we are affording so much power to organizations like Kickstarter, then we are uh, losing our ability to to create the things that we want at a market scale that that is sustainable for a lot of folks. Welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast, the show that calls on the champions and new contenders of the tabletop RPG arena. My name is Jeremy Gage, and I am learning about tabletop game design and publishing. If you are a budding game designer or a veteran looking for fresh musings, Stay tuned as we learn about the inspirations, processes, and philosophies of professionals in the industry. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Draw Your Dice. As always, I'm your host, Jeremy Gage. I'm going to start saying my name just in case people don't remember who I am. Oh, wait, it's in the opening. Anyways, it's not about me. Today, we have our first Bring Back. He bakes. He designs. He psychoanalyzes. You know him. I love him. Let's welcome back everyone. Spencer Campbell. The the applause is probably one of my favorite things about this because I go into like teaching a class. I'm like, hey everybody, I'm Dr. Campbell. I'm gonna teach you stats. And then I just get like dead eyes staring at me. So it's always very cool when you get like a hey, all right, cool, good to see you sort of thing. So very happy it is to be good back to see here. you. Do you, I've never asked this, do you prefer to be called doctor? I mean, you earned the degree. Do you prefer the doctor? <laughs> no, I, I even tell my students, like, you know, Dr. Campbell, I know a lot of students prefer that just because it's what they're comfortable with. That's what they call their other professors. But I, I say, like, you can call me Dr. Spencer. I even let my students call me Spencer if they want. It, it really doesn't matter to me. The, the one funny thing is score, which was my first published game. My best friend, Mike Riemann, who did like the layout on Dust, was doing the layout for Score. And he's more proud that I'm a doctor than I think I am. So he made sure that my name was Dr. Spencer Campbell, PhD, on the cover like of the title page. And so, I mean, 
bless his heart, Mike is very proud of me. <laughs> but for me, it's not a, not super important. <laughs> he said, "You better recognize." Amazing. Well, this will this is my first welcome back guest situation. So for everyone at home, we're we're fucking doing it live right now. So the the format of the show may be slightly different. Who knows? But the first thing, I mean, if you if you don't know who Spencer is. Spencer is an amazing person, and this is a tag for you to listen to episode two of this podcast, because I'm not going to have him reintroduce himself, because if you're a long-time listener, you already know, or if you got his games, you already know. So we're going to just dive right in. Spencer, we brought you back today to talk about how the light season pass is going from episode two, along with your other sci-fi heartbreaker game frame, but let's, let's dive into light first so how has the project been going how has the season pass experiment of light been going so it's been it's been really interesting because i i did a thread i want to say it was maybe a week ago at this point where i i did sort of an update on on numbers for the season pass because part of the season pass thing is is this an interesting format for releasing and supporting a game, especially like a modular sort of game like Light is, as opposed to doing something that I think is more familiar to folks like a Patreon? Like Patreon makes sense. It's a monthly platform, regular releases. Like Light could have been that, or like the season could have been done on that. But does this, can we can we keep it all in the same ecosystem on Itch? And what I'm finding, I'm, I'm finding some cool, interesting numbers with it. One of the numbers that I talk a lot about on, on Twitter is this concept of the retention rate, which is you don't want, like nobody should buy this season pass if they don't own light. Like if you own, if you buy the season pass, you have material that you can't really use because you need the core rules. So... Basically, I, I look to see what percentage of people who bought Light and bought then bought Spark, which is the name of the first season. And you can look at just like general like numbers, like how many people paid for Light, how many people paid for Spark, and look at it as a ratio of that. But that's actually not a complete picture. And I mentioned that I teach stats earlier, and so like I get super into like data and numbers. So if this gets like too mathy or too like we don't need these dry numbers. Just let me know. But I, I, that's an that's an imperfect data set because because I offer essentially infinite community copies of Light on Itch. Somebody who bought Spark could be somebody who grabbed one of those community copies. So it's actually not a perfect ratio if you just look at payments. And so you can scrub that data out of Itch. You can compare like people who actually bought each. And I, I've been using that and comparing it to previous projects like Dust, which was a supplement for Slayers, to see if the rates are similar to each other. Super fascinating stuff. I'm also very much like a numbers analytics sort of person. And we can talk numbers fucking all day. I don't care. I'm not <laughs> as well versed in like terminology, but I love breaking down like, okay, like I'm always the person who thinks of business in a year rather than a day or a week or whatever, because I feel like that's a better subset of numbers. But yeah, just real quick, you know, because I think it should have been done first, but I don't know what I was thinking when I asked questions. Give us, give a very small intro on what light is for everyone who may be listening to this as their first episode. Sure. So Light is my rules light uh, love letter to the Destiny video game. Basically, I took Destiny, I filed off the serial numbers, I, I 
I trimmed a lot off of it to make it sort of this streamlined, very rules light game. That's it's still probably more combat focused because that's what Destiny is is focused on. But it isn't a like grind out tactical combat game like war game but instead sort of this free-flowing fast combat game that tries to best encapsulate what what the cool stuff to destiny is to me which is like the awesome powers and shit that like warlocks and and titans and and hunters have and it was the original release was all like could fit on a single sheet of paper and then since then i've been supporting it with what i call modules these like little bonus things that add rules to the game that you don't have to use like you could technically just use the core rules and then you can feel free to sort of like plug and plug in whatever modules you want to make the game whatever version of destiny that you want it to be what i love about this what do i want as this series evolves as this podcast evolves uh, a lot of the episodes so far have been really focused on dissecting games specifically to get people who may be interested in game design to a place where they feel like they have an understanding of maybe pieces of terminology or can reach out to people if they have similar interests or zone of genres that they that they vibe with to to get connected with but at some point i also want to start bringing in because if people are looking to game design as a career or maybe even a little bit more seriously as a discipline than like a side hobby or something like that the numbers and business part of the game are vastly just as important as being able to construct a game if you want it to have some form of longevity so what i love about this season pass concept when we think about games like D fifth edition they're releasing upwards of five books every year that are not necessary to buy. You could buy the player's handbook by itself and play D&D in of itself, $50 book. But every other $50 book you buy from that point forward is going to supplement the game in some way. And at some point, you know, we'll have to talk about how much is too much in like a, in like a concept of the vacuum that is D&D, like how many books water down the game to so much that you like, it's a giant rules inventory. But what I love about this module selling idea or create even creation idea is that you you made a game that basically fits on one to two pages at the end of the day. And what you're able to do is both an exercise and application of continuing that small creation process that you're constantly turning something out. And I know that when we talked about it on the second episode, you talked about maybe an end of the year book that encapsulates all of those modules as one final product that people could get for like 25 bucks or something like that, whatever that looks like. Or if you have got, if you had gotten all the season passes, you basically get it for free or have an option for a discounted print version. I think it's amazing. I think it's a really good way for someone to scale themselves up and also provide this environment that allows for people to, because you just did a tag or you just did a Twitter post about doing an, an a la carte version of like thinking about uploading the different modules and allowing people to buy them piece by piece that they find interesting, which is similar to the um, D&D Beyond model of like, oh, I only want the Echo Knight class. I don't want the whole Wild Mount book. Just give me the class or something like that. So I think that's very, very cool. And I think this is a, an episode to definitely like favorites if anyone's listening to like keep that in your back pocket and think about this model as you're beginning your journey as a game designer i know i am i'm certainly thinking about it literally every day since we talked about it so i'm like i i'm hoping that it is sort of inspiring to 
folks that you realize that maybe you don't have to write the whole thing right away that you, you know, Mm -hmm. if you, or if you write something and you go, oh, I didn't include that thing. And now it's like this whole other, this one concept or rule that I wanted to include. And now it's this whole like big to do to revise my previous edition. My hope is that this sort of lets people know that you can, you can do it at the pace that works for you. And if it's, if you're like me, where sometimes you get into a frenetic pace where you're just like, I got to get this out of my brain, then that works. <laughs> and then if you like to take your time with it, it's still something that you can, you know that you can always come come back to it. And I think that's really, I think that's important, especially because, because prior to thinking like this, I always sort of thought about like, I have to release the product as it's like full complete version. And then I would inevitably have some sort of regret after it came out. And I was like, well, now what am I supposed to do? And I know that was something that we've talked about in the past of like this concept of second editions and and things like that. And so I, I find this season pass or modular approach or, you know, kind of whatever name we ultimately want to put onto it as is very freeing to me as a, as a designer. I, it's, it's, and I think what's most, imp- or one of the things that's very appealing to me is the customizability of it. It allows folks to decide how they want to play this game or how much they want to invest in it. I'm not putting a specific price gate that you have to hit really to like get the full experience. Like you can buy mm-hmm. the things that you want to buy and you can play the game as complex as you want to play the game. Uh, and I think that sort of customizability is is cool that we have that we have the capacity to do that with with role playing games like that. I think it's interesting that you mention that little tidbit about you can make the game as complex as you want it, right? Cuz like you like you said the original rules you constructed for for light is that it's not a war game at the end of the day. Even though the game is very like combat focused, it's not tactically war gamey, so but I, there's this little nugget that's now like poking at my brain about like scaling complexity, right? Where you can create a game and then bridge it with modules. It's like you're almost creating multiple variants on genre of the same game. When you think about this module concept, right? Because if you wanted, if you're the type of player that loves the cinematic narrative stuff, stick with the core rules, right? If you're the type of player that loves that five foot by five foot movement, you know, later this year I'm releasing a use a battle map module. I'm not saying you are, but it's interesting to think about that you could, there's so much more, because we think about hacks, right? We think about games being hacked by other people and thus they distinguish or delineate into the different genres of play based on whatever they want to add to the original source material. But it's interesting to come at it from a designer's point of view where you could potentially say, I want a grittier Destiny. I want a more wargamey Destiny. I want a less combat where we talk about like the city structure and stuff like that, right? Like the story pieces. I find it interesting that someone could approach the design of a game that they've created, look at it and say, okay, what sort of optional rule thing, not necessary for the game, but might appease a different subgenre of player and i think that's that's very very cool it's kind of what i was thinking when i did slayers too of like creating different classes that are sort of different at levels of complexity or or crunch as we would call it right so that you can Mm -hmm. you can play this monster hunting game 
with as much like dive in on your own as I want the really crunchy, like complicated class to to be up front or I just want to kind of hang out with my friends and like I'll support them in the background with this lighter thing and and at the same time we all get to play the same game and I think that's just Mm -hmm. really important for Mm -hmm. for me at my tables because I have of the groups that I play with a really wide variety of people and what they prefer to play both the the type of game and just even their play style within a game so if I can create games that can sort of help cater to all those as much as I can at the same time, I, I like doing that. It's it, I the media image that I don't know if anyone who's listening or even you yourself, Spencer, have played Darkest Dungeon or maybe games similar to it. But there's or even Hades is a great example because I know Hades is super big right now in the video game world. There's the Pact of Punishment, mm. right? Where you are taking off boxes like how hard do you want to make your run? Do you want to give bosses extra moves? Do you want to give them extra HP? Do you want to give enemies extra armor? And there's sort of this imagery where when you think about this concept in combination with this light framework, the season pass framework, and this conversation about optional module rules, that you can sort of like come to a table and say, okay, everyone, here's the full light spread what boxes are we checking checking for our campaign, right? Like, I want subclasses. I want more weapons. I want tactical combat. Let's not do narrative stuff, right, for the sake of those who maybe really want to dive into the combat things. And I think that's a really cool, like, I don't know. I think it just changes the... When you approach it from the get-go, when I think about the comparison of D&D, right, where you're like, okay, you can only use classes from the core rules, Right. Some people that rubs poorly against because like, well, wait, I want to play the Echo Knight. I just got on D&D Beyond in this campaign that I'm going to commit, you know, 12 weeks of my time to. Right. And you're saying that I can't. Well, I guess it's not the game for me. Right. But if there was something that came from it from the get go that said you're allowed to use whatever combination of modules you want instead of a world where the designers have sort of said everything is a go, then I don't know. I just think there's something a little bit more friendly about that when it comes to deciding the the shape of your campaign. Sure. And I think one thing that allows games, like the games that I make to do that as opposed to D&D is that I'm pretty overtly against the concept of balance. So if if balance Mm -hmm. is something that's baked into your game, then... You need to make sure that every little mod, if you're going to start including modules, that they don't mess up your machine, right? It needs to be a well-oiled mm-hmm. running machine, and it needs to be fair, and everybody needs to feel like they're having a fair experience. And if I, if I'm overtly telling you in the rules, there's no such thing as balance in this game, then that gives you that freedom to decide, like, oh yeah, we want this to be. A, a narrative focused destiny game so we're going to remove like the randomized weapon tables we just want to have whatever weapon we want and uh, you know we're going to remove this but add this and and i i i i think that the ba- the 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 existence of balance is a big part of why some games maybe do exactly like you said feel friendlier or or more approachable in in the creativity and the customizability than others because it's it just runs it's it runs in opposition to a game that runs on balance to try and tinker to tinker it tinker with it however you want 
I literally wrote down on like my I have like every time I have one of these meetings, interviews, podcast episodes, I have like a little note card that I write the like the boon ideas from the ones that are like, ooh, I should use that. So Pact of Punishment is on there. Like a Pact of Punishment module modularity. I think it's a really really cool concept and i think it's going to tie into a later thing that we're going to talk about some surprise stuff because i think hopefully if everything works out this episode will come out around march april-ish mid-april-ish and you'll get to hear about some fun potentials now i'm not promising anything spencer (laughs) has to make the promises oh no (laughs) yeah (laughs) no but i'm excited for that but i'm glad to hear that season pass of light is going well for you Let's touch on, I don't know if, how much you can recall from, from memory, and I'm not pressing you to do so. If this doesn't work out, I can obviously edit it out. But let's talk about that, that re- those retention numbers and, and things like that and how the business of the season pass is going for you at, at a more analytical level. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've, I think I've said this on Twitter a couple of times that I want to be a, a really open book about light in general, but also spark this season pass thing just because for me since game design isn't my day job i have the kind of the freedom to to play around with models like this and if it doesn't work then then it's okay and i can kind of continue to to play around with things so i want to play around and i want to experiment so that i can give that data to other folks to decide what works best for them and so to talk about like that retention rate for example so uh, a comparison would be to dust which was my Kickstarter that I ran, which was a supplemental zine for Slayers. And just comparing like the numbers of people who bought Slayers from the Kickstarter and Dust from the Kickstarter, the rate was about about a 33 to 35%. So about a third of the people, just from a numbers perspective. Now, I don't know if it's the same people, right? Again, I'm not comparing the spreadsheets against each other, like to compare names, but that's a rough approximation in terms of like backers. And what I'm seeing with with Light and Spark is about, right now, sitting at about a 40% just by raw numbers. But like I said earlier, that's, that's assuming that everybody who bought Spark also bought Light. And I know that's not true because of community copies. And so I have scrubbed the data, and the number is closer to like 20 to 25% of folks who bought Light are bought Spark. And so... The, you know, the retention rate is maybe lower than the dust rate, but again, that dust rate isn't a perfect thing. So I think folks who do stuff like this, I'm curious to see if they see similar sorts of of rates when they release supplements to things. If they're seeing like that 20 to 30 percent of like people who bought your first thing or your core thing, are those, are you roughly getting that same sort of return rate? So that's that's where I'm at right now. The vast, to, to speak to some other numbers, the vast majority of sales that I got with Spark came from pre-orders. So mm-hmm. before Spark even came out, I was, I was allowing pre-orders from it, just like Destiny does, right? They do pre-orders with, with their season passes, and it's cheaper. And I made it cheaper for folks to buy it ahead of time on faith that I would be releasing stuff that they thought was cool for like a four-month period. And... So I think I I 
from what I last checked, it's like 85% of my sales came from pre-orders. And then I've, I've since seen a few that have come afterwards, but the, the vast bulk came from, from the pre-orders, which is really interesting to me. So before they had even seen anything, they, they, had, they, they trusted me. And I know that's something that like we like in the brain trust that gets talked about a lot is like how can we get away from Kickstarter or you know what other models are there and I know some mm-hmm. folks have played around with things like doing pre-order systems on on itch and and even on like their own websites to to try and to fund their games even almost like a crowdfunding effort and so we're seeing with well, I'm seeing it with my thing, and I think other folks are seeing it with their things, that it does work. We're, we're, we're certainly not getting the same numbers and eyes than we would if we got Kickstarter. And I think a big part of that is Itch's communication capabilities, which is something that I've kind of railed against in the past, especially when compared to Patreon. I find that Patreon is a known entity. People get it. And then on top of that, with Patreon, you have polls and comments and things like that and like a, a, a seamless email system to to be in contact with your patrons a lot more so than on itch itch you're doing like updates and devlogs and you might have a discussion board on your page but you have to kind of just pray that people are going to see any of that stuff and i know that there are folks who have like an uncomfortable feeling about using the email system on itch as opposed to like if you used email for Kickstarter for updates or, or Patreon. So I think it's the, the lack of ability to like directly interface with the folks who are trying to support you that makes itch still not like the ideal place to be doing something like this season pass. But again, I'm only a couple weeks in, so I'm still ironing out all the the kinks and seeing how it goes. But this is just sort of the, some of the things that I'm noticing here in the first few weeks, as uh, from where we're talking right now. Yeah, there's definitely this concept of, as I'm seeing it, to my limited knowledge, degreening from Kickstarter and trying to figure out how to explore other pastures when it comes to things like think about how much Kickstarter takes their cut, et cetera, et cetera. But the beast is a beast because of its attention, of its ability to garner attention for what you're working on. But we can't be subservient to a single monopoly, otherwise they control exactly how our entire lives function, really. So we have to start making other options for people. And I would love, I, I know there's a bunch of people in the Brain Trust, and I really hope to get them on here soon to really talk about procedures. I know Tyler Crumrine is is into that sort of uh, conversation. I believe Chris Bissett is also in there. Kurt, sorry, Kurt, I do not know your last Potts. name. I apologize. Potts, Kurt Potts. They, they are also into the sort of degreening model. So I would really love to get them in here and have that conversation. I think that's but a yeah, good point. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you. Well, I think that's a good point about like the idea of Kickstarter. If it is sort of like our sole thing that we're using, that it, it dictates... It dictates what becomes popular. It dictates what becomes successful. And I know like a lot of folks, and totally justifiably, are, you know, they're jaded about things like Zine Quest because Kickstarter puts rules on what qualifies as a zine for Zine Quest. So like size of zine and the use of color and stuff of like for in order for things to qualify as a zine for Zine Quest, like why does Kickstarter get to decide what a zine is? That's like and that's antithetical to zine culture in general. So if we mm-hmm. are affording so much power to 
organizations like Kickstarter, then we are uh, losing our ability to to create the things that we want at a market scale that that is sustainable for a lot of folks. If they're if they're looking to do this on as like a as a job as a career or something like that, you kind of inevitably have to play the Kickstarter game right now, or at least that that seems to be the case. And so, I think that's I think you raised a good point about that. Mm-hmm. It's I I know in current as of the recording of this episode, there is a discourse about a change that Patreon just made amongst all of their not patrons, well, sort of their patrons, but also the creators. And that instead of being a first of the month deduction from people's accounts, it has turned into an anniversary model, which means for people who may not know what that is, is that when you sign up to subscribe, that is the date that you are being charged. And that is also how the creators are being paid. That used to be in bulk, but now will be in little pieces. And lots of people have constructed their business models around this first of the month sale thing. And now I'm seeing a lot of people talk about how their entire business model is destroyed because it's really hard to keep up to date in that same structure with an anniversary pay. So kind of talking about this monopoly of Kickstarter is that, sure, Kickstarter is fine now, but if they become so large, almost everyone is using them and they make a bad change, it it can affect on a much wider scale than if a few people were using Kickstarter because Kickstarter wasn't the only name in the game. You know, people have talked about, for the Patreon discourse, moving to Kofi, but Kofi doesn't provide a lot of the same functionality that Patreon does. And a lot of people are like, yeah, we'll move to you if you can be like, NSFW friendly, if you can be, if you have a better subscription model or tier model, or if you have better conversation interface for our fans, like, we have to start thinking about ways we may have to be the creators of those systems that as you're doing with, I think the reason I bring all this full circle is that you're creating the season pass model on itch. If just one person in the itch, what do I want to call them? Owners, workers, employees, whoever makes the decisions about how itch operates as a model. If we could start having conversations about different pay structures or different conversational or discoverability techniques for the website, we could really start to break away from Kickstarter or larger platforms in those models because it would be geared to the game designer, right? It would be geared to thinking about how people consume games, create games, share games, all that all that sort of stuff. So I think, I think this sort of concept or people who think of concepts like this are the first stepping stones to getting those ideas out there. Yeah, it, it, it'd be cool if Itch was watching and <laughs> and decided that they would want to implement some of these changes because i mean i mean folks have been asking for things from itch like on splitting revenue for single games like we we can't do that right now so if you co-design mm-hmm. something one person has to put it on their itch and then you kind of have to just pay the other person when when money comes in so like that's something that people have been asking for a while and so it would be it'd be cool if itch started to like recognize I, I don't know like because again we the tabletop RPG scene we latched on to itch right mm-hmm. like so I don't know what you know percentage of itch's traffic and revenue and everything like that that our community makes compared to the indie computer game scene that that it was originally sort of intended for or or the, the makes up I think the majority of their stuff another cool platform which 
you know, there's Roll, which is that new mm-hmm, tabletop mm-hmm. thing. They're they're they plan on having a creator marketplace, and mm-hmm. they're so early on in development and, and they're relatively quick to change things that hopefully they are maybe watching what's going on here, especially since they're, you know, they want to support indie designers. You saw that with the, the folks that they spotlighted as part of their Kickstarter campaign. And so hopefully then they're seeing that and maybe their marketplace is going to have a lot of the tools that we're, you and I are talking about right now. You know, I don't know when that's going live, but whenever that does go live, I think that might hopefully be a place that we can also start to do this, this degreening process. What, what I really love, and this is not, I don't want this to be like a pat on the back for myself, but I listen, I try to listen to a lot of different game design tip podcasts to get ideas for this show. And what I love about this show is that I really don't care about what's going on in the mainstream sort of world because that doesn't speak for, I I honestly don't think the mainstream world speaks for the majority of the amount of game designers that are out there. Cause you know, if you think about, movie stars, right? There's probably, you're probably only really seeing like 15% of the total industry. It's just all the time. So you think that that's 100% the industry, but there's so many other people calling for different things to break away from tradition, to start looking at innovations and moving towards uh, a future set of models that work with the technologies that we have, with the interests that people are starting to formulate or wish they had. I know that me and my partner often talk about how this pandemic, and speaking to America specifically, is really potentially going to change the outlook of what our 40-hour work week looks like or what our um, brick and mortar landscape feels like. And, and not to get into that conversation for this particular episode, but I think it's important to realize that there is a forward momentum happening in a lot of places at this exact point in time. And I would love to capitalize on, I hope people are who listen to this will share it with their friends who are also designers who want something different to happen that don't want to be at the beck and call of Kickstarter or Patreon or even, you know, those are the only two that come to my mind because my mind is rapid firing right now. But yeah, just not be subservient to these monopolies, this degreening conversation and just sort of, you know, indie or punk or whatever you want to call it. It's about DIY. It's about doing yourself. And it's about figuring it, figuring out what works for you and making it work. And it can work. It does have the capacity to work, and it sometimes takes a village, but there is a village out there, I think. Yeah, it's. I think it's about finding that, that village. It's about finding that community, too. I think that's something that you and I have talked about in the past is, you know, we're fortunate to have found the, the, the brain trust, and, and that's one fantastic community. But just in general, the indie TTRPG community is is you'll always find new pockets of it. And whenever you find one of them, you're introduced to new cool ideas. Like I, I was on a stream on Saturday night playing light and I met a whole new community that I had never met before. And they had insights into things that I didn't know about. And I was talking to them about things that they didn't know about. And it was a cool sharing of like, you know, inspiration and knowledge and stuff like that. And I think, I think that's just one of the, one of my favorite things about this is just being able to, meet and chat with with folks all the time about this stuff because 
inevitably one of us is going to have a, an idea that's going to work or will inspire something that will work, right? Like it's very gestalt. We are the greater, the sum is greater than the, the parts sort of idea, right? Like the whole mm -hmm. is greater than the sum of the parts. So like I, I, I'm, I'm all for it. I'm all for this stuff that we're talking about. Let's do it. Let's degreen, 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 degreen. I, I mean, I'd love to, you know, I'm, I, again, I'm, what two weeks technically into this season pass thing when we're recording when this goes live mm -hmm. i think the season pass mm -hmm. might be ending and who knows mm -hmm. what sort of changes i'll have implemented or what lessons i'll have learned then but i mean i'm already learning a couple things two weeks in that i wasn't thinking about before or you know just learning you know just trends of it like it is it's almost like the the kickstarter growth rate where when you first launch a kickstarter it's huge very successful and then after like you have your first couple of days and then nobody's really buying or looking at your page anymore and that's similar sort of thing with the season pass like spark had a huge surge and now you know folks are checking in whenever i do something with it but new sales aren't happening but the next module comes out in two more weeks and so will that bring a new thing i think that'll be an interesting lesson to learn is you know, if it's if the selling point of this season passing is you're getting four like substantial modules and people have seen the first one, will the second one drop like will that being released bring more folks to the season pass or will it more just be like, OK, the folks who originally bought in are just going to be happy to keep getting what they get. And other folks are like, well, I didn't get it in from the beginning and I'm just not as interested in it. It's it's hard to tell, right? It's it's so I'm excited to be learning these lessons on a week by week basis. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Uh, that was that was the deep lore. That was the deep lore right there. I love that. I, uh, I, I love talking this sort of stuff, <laughs> like the sort of like business side of things or the numbers, because I. I like being a very open book about it. So, you know, if, if, if anything I learn can be valuable to somebody else who is starting to design, because I, I don't consider myself a veteran by any means, but I've at least been around this scene for about a year now. And if I can help anybody, then I will try in every way I can to help that person. Yeah, or maybe even someone who's more, you know, technically sound in business rapture, right? Or business innovation, right? Because... I don't certainly pretend to be one, an expert designer, but two, even like an expert business person. And I'm sure there are techniques or philosophies or principles that someone who could take your exact same idea and spin it up to a million dollars, right? Like someone out there, if they if they care enough, you know, that the Tony Robbins of goddamn game design or whatever. I mean, I'm sure wizards could take this and make way more <laughs> money than what they're doing right now. Like they make money off of their books, but microtransactions have been shown in video games to be like way more profitable than just like wholesale mm -hmm. of games so like wizards is still old school video game marketing right now by selling whole products as books but if they just did this microtransaction thing they'd be even worse than they are right now so hopefully they won't listen to this and hopefully yeah. somebody else will listen to this and be like ah oh, that's a good idea i will use this for good and not evil So Spencer, let's let's get a little bit of game design in here before we start talking about the collaborative projects. Frame, mm. what the fuck is it? <laughs> it's a really 
Fair question. By the time this releases, who knows what frame will be? I just saw your tweet about the no dice, no masters model change. I was like, oh shit. Right. So frame right now, as our as our conversation here at the end of January, is it's my second love letter game. Second love letter modular system for a video game. This time it's Warframe instead of Destiny. Because I, I'm obsessed with Warframe. I love Warframe. And... You know, a lot of the things that I love about Warframe are really poorly translated to a tabletop, like grinding. Like, I, I like that kind of gameplay in video games. If I can just mindlessly grind stuff, like, that's that's good for me because then I can listen to podcasts or whatever in the background. That's not in frame, but, like, the <laughs> <laughs> which would, I don't know. I don't know if that would sell well. For me, frame is a... It borrows a lot from the DNA of light in terms of how it works, and... But but with some some changes to best reflect what Warframe is like as a game. Because I think the difference between Warframe and Destiny is Warframe is this extremely frenetic combat system. You're running into rooms and you're clearing them out and your Warframes are doing all these crazy cool powers and just you're you're going off and it's it's really it's a technicolor like wonder show in front of you with all of the, the explosions and everything, right? And Destiny is a little bit more methodical and maybe strategic, and so Warframe, my my game, is meant to sort of capture that element. It's supposed to be about being badass frames, being badass, you know. I have come up with no good name alternatives for all of these things right now, so that I will just keep using the, the names from Warframe. So, you know, it's, it's about picking a frame that fits your play style. So again, going into that customizability thing. You know, pick a frame if you want to be the one that's up front, if you want to be the person supporting, if you want to be the control person, and just, like, going on fun missions and just wiping out rooms full of en- enemies and, and, and feeling like a badass while you're doing it. Yeah, so you have kind of taken... I know when we first talked about it, and me and Spencer have tiny conversations every now and again, little hour coffee breaks (laughs) of talking about the games we're working on. But I know originally when we talked about it, it was very much a base it off of the light model. And I know that per our last conversation, you, we sort of talked about how maybe it's a much larger game and or system, potentially, it doesn't have to be, but potentially it's a much larger system than what light is able to put load on, I guess is, is, the phrase I want to use currently that I can't think of a better one. So how how has, I guess what's nice about this particular design commentary is, are you currently satisfied with how Frame is playing? I know you put it out in the ethos to get some feedback from people. What have you found in that feedback, if anything? Yeah, so the I was really thankful that that I did sort of this open call for people who wanted to read the quick start and and just there were a lot of folks who stepped forward and said, "Yeah, I'd love to read it." And the cool thing was they were it was a mix of people who were in the TTRPG space, so they and and loved Warframe, so they had like all the knowledge I needed. Then there were people who were in role playing but didn't know Warframe, and so that's a different set of knowledge. And then there are the people who aren't into role-playing games but are super into Warframe who also <laughs> read it. And that was also extremely helpful. And from, you know, some folks gave really good feedback about places to clarify and tighten things up. And, and for that, I'm always extremely thankful. But it seemed, at least from the the first set of 
comments on this first draft that I'm on the right track, that, mm-hmm. that I'm sort of capturing some of the elements of Warframe that people like. And one thing that I saw a lot, which I'm extremely thankful for, is that it captures the the essence of Warframe without having to be like a grindy tabletop role-playing game. Because that was my that was my goal with Light was to capture the essence of Destiny without feeling without coming up with like extremely complicated rules for an FPS, you know, like a tactical shooter in a role-playing game. Because that I never play those games. I don't play those games in my own life. So I don't want to design a game like that as well. Mm-hmm. So the I'm I'm happy with where the direction it's moving right now. I I keep stalling on my second draft. I've I've cleaned up a lot of stuff that that folks gave feedback on, and I, there's a couple. There's like two more sections I need to write before I feel like it's in a solid second draft. But I keep stalling and making new character sheets for frames instead, which is <laughs> which is a fun practice for me just to just to try making different warframes. But the game is definitely, I think bigger than light like you mentioned earlier because i i don't have it diluted down the core rules to like the single page that was my original original thing and i think that's what you and i first talked about like a long time ago when i was showing it to you that that single page that like technically got the rules across but it really was missing a lot of the things that i thought were important that deviated that that frame deviates from light that that was that was being lost in translation with that sort of very small presentation style so this one is going to be more of like it would fit in a proper book or like a a large zine sort of thing but even still i want it to be modular like there's going to just be i'm just front loading a little bit more information than i did before with light so that you have all of that but i still absolutely want to do that modular thing because if you've played warframe you realize that there's (laughs) A million different things that you can do in that game. And I think there's a lot more moving parts in Warframe than there is in Destiny. And so if I tried to put all of those things into one book, the book would be huge, right? And it wouldn't be fun mm-hmm. to read. So that's why I, again, think this modular approach is is good and fits this. Of like, if this is the kind of thing from Warframe you like, then, you know, slot this in. If you don't like this definitely don't play this module right you know it, it, i i like mm-hmm. that sort of so i'm 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 happy with where it's at i la- this weekend i got like a big surge in desire to design it this week because i rode high off of my light stream and i was like okay so light works people like it so that means frame must at least kind of work because it's based yeah. off of light so let me <laughs> let me get going on that so, so that that's kind of where i'm at right now ah I love it. I love it's in, it's interesting to hear that I think what's nice about this welcome back episode and kind of checking in on how a project that we actually got sort of ground level on is going and then to hear another one is that even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We get to see that sometimes we're not always happy as designers with sort of first conceptual stuff. I, I think this also applies back in the day, I wanted to be a novel writer and tried very hard to do that, but I just did not have like the the gumption for it. But a lot of what I learned from that is that you never, you are never going to create the perfect idea the first sentence you write. It's never gonna happen. Novels, whatever, whatever writing, even film, screenplays, whatever have you, I guess any creation endeavor? Yeah. Every creation endeavor has some sort of space where you have to revise or or look at it look at it from a different angle of whatever you're creating, right? Even something physical like jewelry or pottery, you know, your technique may be sloppy or your vocabulary might not be as verbose as others, right? Or you might ha- not have the right mechanic in a place. And I think something that I wanted to tack on to the last conversation is that there is always an option to go back and revise. Like when we talked about how light could change as a game after so many modules, like it could certainly become a completely different game by the end of the year. And there is this idea of, I think there's always this idea of like, you can't go backwards. Like you can't rewrite something. And that's not true, right? You could come to the end of, you Spencer could come to the end of the year, make the light book, compilation of all the modules and then be like, I kind of want to adjust the basic rules to fit some of these modular ideas that I have. And that's okay. I don't think anyone would be, cause they wouldn't, I don't think they would ever be in a vein of like huge tweaks, right? They wouldn't like change the outset of why people love this light game in the first place. So when you look at a game like frame and that you try you have an original idea. I mean, I'd go through dice models like a, like a motherfucker whenever I make up a game, like this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel right. I don't like this. What do I do? But I think there's this idea about revisiting something and being okay with your, like, I think there's two types of critiques you have to be okay with, both an external critique from others. I think you have to be able to take that stuff in. That's very important as any sort of creator. But there's also this internal critique 
of like, don't force it. If you're like, man, this doesn't feel right. Let it go, get rid of it, delete it, whatever. Move it to a different game, something, and just try again. Because if it doesn't feel right, you can't force it to feel right. And maybe you write something later that does make that feel right. And maybe that's a whole nother game. And then your business keeps flourishing because you keep making games off of the other gestalt ideas. So I think it's important from here to realize that there's always this concept of revision that you can go back and even touch base on the, the first piece of a, a piece of work. Totally. Like, I, that's something that you and I, I think we talked a lot about last time with second editions and, and things like that of just, you know, so many of the games that I made, if I had forced myself to kind of move forward with whatever the initial iteration of the game was, the initial, I, you know, conception or mechanics that I had down, they would look totally different and I probably wouldn't have been happy with them, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. so many games... You know, light only came about because I had been trying for like a year to make games that were about immortal gunslingers and things like that, that had completely different mechanics that I was working on and working on. And I liked some things and I didn't like other things. And eventually light manifested as like almost just a spark that came out of like, okay, suddenly I realized what I like about that previous mechanic. And then that's it. I'm scrapping everything else. And then that, and it moves from there. And so I, th- I think that's really important. That's a, that's a very valuable lesson that you just laid out. Yeah. I mean, even for myself, like I think about the DMC game, I think about this Aether game I'm working on. And it is, just, you know, for this Aether one, or even for DMC, like there are so many things in there that I'm like, it just doesn't give the feel mm-hmm. I want, right? Like if I'm trying to, ca- if I'm trying to do my, heartbreaker to dmc i need to be able to capture fast fluid combat that's not like you know you're not talking about damage numbers you're just talking about doing things right you're talking about looking fucking badass so do you weigh that down with narrative relationship scenes do you weigh that down with factions do you weigh that down with even travel time is something to consider right because dmc doesn't really have any of that mild platforming in some of them, but, and then how do I capture that? Right. How do I capture platforming? And I think it's important to have, give yourself that internal critique voice of like, doesn't feel right. Gotta try something else. Can't force it. No matter how much I think that, I think what it's about is getting out of your comfort zone is also a piece of it in that you can't, you know, I know the target number system because I come from D&D 5e, so I know that I have to roll above AC, but does that model capture the feel of your game, right? Do you need skills? Do you need ability scores? Are those things that are important to capture the feel of the game you're trying to get across, right? Do you need tactical combat? And I know we touched on that a bit in the previous segment, but I think it's worth reiterating for sure. That's that's just it just reminds me of the concept of like hacks, for example, like I I always recommend folks who want to get into design to hack something just to like create a supplement or a character or or something like that based off of another thing. The one pitfall of that is that when you hack a system, you feel like you almost have to use everything that's in the previous system, especially if you're a new designer and you don't understand like I don't have to use all this. You know, I could use just this thing and it still works. And so you know, kind of like you were saying, if 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 I know this system, it's familiar to me, then I feel almost obligated to continue to use all the pieces of that system because mm-hmm. maybe it's because I have all of those things that I like that system. And that's probably not the case. It's probably you don't need all of those pieces. And I think that's that's also an important lesson to keep in mind with this this process of 
Like if you if you're if you're building something based off of something else, it really doesn't have to be a one-to-one copy. Like just throw a lot of that stuff out. So everyone, Spencer has this wonderful passion for collaboration, and I am all on board for, it's almost like another sort of business model thing for me in my mind as well. So anyways, Spencer, why don't you talk about what's been kicking around in your brain with working titles, right? <laughs> Atlas and Aviary. Yeah. Again, like whenever this actually gets released, yeah. who knows, right? It, it could be yeah, so different. Be, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the Atlas, the Slayer's Atlas, or I think I've been using Almanac as well. I think I use those interchangeably, mm-hmm. so I probably will here too. You know, I've I've really enjoyed making things for Slayers on my own, but then I also had a, a ton of fun watching the Slayers jam where people were making things for Slayers and it, it sort of hit me that I, I've i created a setting that is this infinitely expanding city that it could be anything. So why am I the only one writing that city? Mm-hmm. Because it's going to, even if I call it infinite, it's going to be boxed into whatever I'm used to or what I think of when I think of monster hunting settings or fantasy settings or anything like that. And so what I have been wanting to do for a while is to put together big collaborative projects in which I may be sort of orchestrating and, and coordinating a lot of things, but my the amount of writing or contribution on my end is very small by comparison. And so the one of the first manifestations of this is going to be this Slayer's Atlas, where if, if you've seen Dust, you saw the, the map that Mike Riemann made the hex map for the the District of Dust, and he made it on the back cover, but it's also in that newspaper print, if you got the newspaper print. And I love the map. I'm just a sucker for hex maps in general. I think they're cool. And Mike loved making it, and he proposed to me a while ago. He said, if you want to make more maps, if you want me to make more maps, I'll make more maps. And so... (laughs) It got me thinking, you know, I had folks who on the original Slayers Kickstarter were, uh, they got to write districts that went into the main book. And I, so I had experience doing that with people and Mike wanted to make more maps. And I said, okay, let's just combine this into a big thing. And so that the Atlas is going to, as of right now, when we're recording this, this is the intention. It's going to be (laughs) about, I think, 10 districts. And each district is going to be about... Right now, the way Mike and I have sort of done mock-up layouts, it's going to be about like four pages per district. And there's going to be a nice map that Mike is going to custom make for each one. And it's not always going to be the same shape. Like, it doesn't always have to be like a hexagon-shaped map. Like, you might make a really, like, long, thin, narrow district. And so the map will look like that. Or you might have a district that works with, like, elevation in a weird way. And so he'll make a map that works for that. So we're gonna, you're going to get this cool map and legend of like locales and 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 things like that in it and then and these are all going to be created by other people not me that's the crucial component is i'm not writing all of these instead i'm getting other voices into the slayers world where where folks are going to be they already have started i've got an open call for pitches for 
for people who are interested in writing this book. The pitches I'm pretty positive will be closed by the time this gets aired. <laughs> but right now I'm 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 reading these fantastic ideas and basically people are going to get a chance to write out these districts in terms of you know who's there, what's important, what are the rumors, but then it's almost like a travel guide to the district. So, you know, it's if you're going to go into this place what are the social norms you need to know? What is the architecture going to look like? What kind of interesting legends are in the area? What you know? What are interesting dialect things that you might find? It's it's going to be a the it's going to be a cool way for you to really feel like each district in the city of the of Slayers is its own microcosm thing, and ultimately, I want the districts to be written by other people. And then I might write something in the beginning about like, what is this book? And then I, I think what I'd like to do is write some stuff at the end about how to use these districts with one another in terms of traveling and stuff like that. But it's right now, I, I basically want to run when this happens, a Kickstarter in which I'm going to pay a bunch of people like I, I don't, my goal is to just pay a bunch of people money to be writers on this uh, Mike and then all, all the other folks and so I want to borrow from the sentiments that other folks have done with Kickstarters with like stretch goals that are just about pay raises and things like that I want an opportunity to bring a lot of new people new voices to the the Slayers world what I think I think this is and I mean the base concept is nothing new to human culture. There's a lot of spaces where you bring a lot of people onto a project that you think will do it well, or maybe you're giving some newcomer a chance at, at doing something like this. But for me, as I view this in at its perspective, first we have the concept of like the D&D model, where they're looking for freelancers to write stuff, and maybe their name gets in like some small print in the credits, and they wrote a paragraph for an adventure or something like that. And then we move into this next era of like the blades where they have this creative commons license that anyone can hack to bits and, and this new generation of, of hacking. Then we have sort of like this jam culture where everyone's making things separately of each other. And there's stuff like DMs guild and drive through RPG that are doing that stuff. And then this model, what I think is, I think what's important about this model is that it comes from a game that doesn't have a strict setting, I think is one key component of how this works. Because if it what if it was written with a set idea, then I don't know if if you could do this exact same concept of bringing in people to create work under this sort of like encyclopedia or volume or expansion based piece of work, right? So with Slayer and for the other one that I hope we touch base with on Corvid Court, both books have I guess what I'll coin here is a light setting. So nothing that has like a strong written history, a strongly written like this is the only constant that exists. Like it's not Exandria for critical role. It's not Tal'Dorei for critical role. They're not like set places that then you have to kind of construct within. I think the idea is that it, it expands outwards, right? It's a setting that can grow. And I, it this concept as I as I've been hearing about on Twitter and from you in the brain trust and everything like that I've already thought about baking into one of the games that I'm working on myself this idea and I think Viditia Valetti is also sort of doing this with the Epsilon mm. city game that that they are working on and 
just this this idea that you can find anything and anything can be here. So like in in the Aether game as like designed concept is that I want it's about like a rebirth of Earth. Like the sun scorches everything. People were living underground. They come out and resources are reset. So take a map of your country, roll some dice over it to put some like landmarks that I provide in the book. That's your setting, right? And I want to see like the American version of that. I want to see India. I want to see Japan. I want to see Italy, right? I want to see people who play across the world internationally and construct this new earth. So when you brought up this idea about a collaboration project, it's like, because the idea is that with this model, you could do multiple volumes, right? You could do this yearly. You could do Atlas One and you have these 10 creators. And then I know that you were also talking about in the brain, no promises here. I don't know if this is <laughs> spoiler or, or NDA or anything like that. But you even talked about how like maybe there's 10 full pages and then there are some subsidy because there's so many people submitting and that's beautiful. It, it shows how much people care about Slayers and care, I guess, also in indirectness to you as well. And the dollars, but... It's you, you brought up like adding like smaller bits of like maybe half pages or one pagers of other pitches that you're getting in these submissions. So I guess what I'm rambling towards is that you created this game that, again, as we talk about the business of game design, has this model where every year you could sort of do an expansion of the setting. And this isn't anything like mechanically crunchy, it's just other ideas, because there are people out there who don't want to homebrew a world, who don't want to homebrew a setting. That's why they buy setting books, right? But if there's this space where like it could be an infinite creation and you're able to bring, what's also beautiful about it is bringing these perspectives from outside of yourself. It can be anyone, anyone who likes Slayers, that understand Slayers, that you even provide creator tools for. And I know that you've created some templates for like what the pages will look like for those pitches that are accepted. But anyone could come to the table, bring their perspective, bring their lens, and under your approval, obviously at some end of the day, because we can't have anyone trying to do detractful or degenerative mm. things to this game, or any game really. I don't know. It's just, it, it's it's very... Very cool that this idea can be sort of the baseline for the game that you're making. Like me, I'm not good at making settings. I know for both of the games that I'm making, I'm trying to put it in a space where like, you imagine what it looks like because I cannot do that. But what an amazing, amazing thing to do, I think is, is what, I'm, what I'm poking at. The, the goal, hopefully, is that folks realize that there are no wrong answers with this, right? Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. as they're mm -hmm. making these pitches, and I'm seeing that, that the, the, the wide variety of really excellent and ideas that I never would have thought of that are coming in, they, and they all work, right? They all technically work because Slayers allows for anything technically to work, both in terms of the setting itself and then, like, mechanically, the classes. Mm -hmm. You can make anything as long as it kind of follows that rough rule of four idea then you're you're good to go so mm. i i'm i'm seeing it already in the pitches that that folks are realizing like it, it's anything goes right now and that's that is the very exciting thing about it and you mentioned the idea of doing multiple volumes like i would love to be able to do something like that if i can figure out a way to make this somewhat sustainable so that i can mm -hmm, i mm -hmm. you know i can keep this going then i would love to be able to keep bringing more people in so that they can keep making their, you know, the idea of what Slayers is, the city is, will just be quite literally ever evolving. 
Mm-hmm. And one other thing I wanted to mention that you talked about people like getting settings. At least right now, as as I've got the the project put together, the 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 atlas will not have anything in it that is directly related to the slayer's mechanics and Mm -hmm. i think that's i think that's an important part of it is that thematically it's in the slayer's world and it alludes to slayer's themed stuff but if somebody is playing D &D and they want a setting that's different than the D D stuff for example or they've seen slayers and they like the concept of it but they can't convince their friend group to play a new game they can buy the Slayer, like they could get this Atlas and still play in the Slayer's universe because there's nothing in here that requires you to be mechanically linked to that stuff. Which again, I do so that the folks writing the districts can truly be free to take them in whatever direction. I don't want them to feel like they have to be bound by whatever makes sense to the mechanics of the core game. Just write whatever you want. The point of Slayers is you'll figure it out. You'll fill in those gaps about why it makes sense or doesn't make sense. Yeah, there's this, you're not the first person to say something like that. It's been on, it's sort of appeared on the periphery of like my my Twitter feed with different channels of, of conversation and just this call for like setting or, or system agnostic settings, right? Because for some, I guess an idea is that it's hard to translate, you know, what would be like a common example? Like, again, bring back Critical Role's Tal'Dorei setting into the D&D universe. Some of those concepts are constructed around the intention that you will be using the 5e system to some extent. Now, can you can can you as a as a more cognitively gifted, more so than myself, individual translate those things into another game? Yes. Absolutely. But there are some who who do find that difficult that you're like, you're not you're not getting sometimes you feel like you're not getting the true heart of what this particular book is trying to give you because you're not playing in the system that it was designed for. I even think about stuff like Numenera. I think about even Blades to some extent, like I guess not so much, but it does have the intention that you're playing with these factions set in Mm -hmm. Duskfall. You could though play faction and i've seen people do like the aruvian setting i know that there are people who are working on the scovalidans and stuff like that and i think it's this this really cool because people want to play from books people want to play from movies people want to play in the avengers universe people want to play the lord of the rings there are games that have been constructed specifically for those things that really bring that granularity of transitioning what Gandalf's the White's powers feel like versus Gandalf the Grey, sure, or something to that effect. But I think what I'm sort of petting here is that all these words that I'm using as verbs for like how my brain is <laughs> operating around this idea, I don't know where it's coming from. But petting is that, again, it's a game that was derived to be versatile the word the word i'm looking for is versatility and the creating a game from the get-go or even a setting that allows you to flex into different genres like when we talked about light and how you could build modules to make it a different genre of game war gaming narrative cinematic relationships combat whatever have you through modular concept and then in this conversation talking about settings that can be played with any game, right? Like if your friends are not going to budge from D and D, 
I've got this really cool district adventure that I could play anywhere that I just have to slap a couple tables onto, right? Or whatever. I can insert, I mean, it's a monster slaying game from sort of the ethos of it. So I can insert any monster manual creature in here. So it's awesome to, to I think what this whole episode sort of wraps around is that there is potential for one of the game design principles that you start a game out on is to think about how it evolves and how it can laterally move within the demographic. Because I don't think it's going to be a long time before anyone grabs away the attention that D&D has from mm. the tabletop biome. But if there is a way to segment that stuff out, this might be particular to people who create sword and sorcery style genre games. But if you can create an agnostic setting, a system agnostic setting that allows for people to grasp onto it, use it, they think it's really cool because they love cyberpunk, solar punk, westerns, whatever. Playing a paladin in a western would actually be sweet to some extent. But but yeah, this is I think the big title word here is modularity. Versi versatility and modularity are, are sort of the big things that this whole thing I think touches on, which is great. Yeah, I, I think that's some that's just something that's become part of my my core concept as a designer is that the, a lot of these things that I make are just not I don't want them to be done when I release them. I want them to be able to evolve and change and I think that's I you know I think part of that is linked to my day job. I'm a I'm a teacher and so I don't teach the same lesson every semester, right? My my classes change every semester as as I learn more and I, as I change more. And so I think I take that same mentality with my, my games is that they can keep changing and I need to listen to other people when I'm talking about this stuff. It can't just be me as the sole author and sole authority on this sort of stuff. And I think that's really, that's the stuff that I, I think that's become, I've, I've realized and you're helping bring it to, to light here. That's, that's sort of my core thesis, my core defining personality trait i guess as a designer is is an emphasis on that sort of modular versatile stuff and you know it's something that i like i love it i vibe with it like if if you're looking for your 100 true fans i am one of them when it comes to those concepts and it's certainly something i really think that i'll end up following your your footsteps in in in, in concept is what i'm sort of getting to because i love the idea that you know, what I what I dislike as a game master is that sometimes I feel very beholden to an adventure or sometimes mm -hmm. I feel very beholden to a mechanic or sometimes I feel very beholden to the setting as I read about them. And I really am a remixer. I love taking ideas from animes, movies, books, songs, and putting them in my games. Things that, you know, I'm scrolling through Instagram and I find a random artist who has a really cool, I don't know, I'm very into horse, like an emaciated dead horse that's eating another horse, like <laughs> content warning stuff here. But, you know, if that, if I see that, I'm like, shit, I have a heart game coming up this week. I would love to put that shit in there, right? Like, that sort of stuff would is really what drives me as a player, and I think it's also what drives me in concept as a designer. And when we finally sort of nailed the head on this versatility modularity stuff, I think that for me, it's something I also gravitate towards. And I hope that anyone who's listening knows that there's another way, learns that there's another way to do things. That, you know, as we talked about through this whole thing, is that you don't create 
the core book. You don't have to create the final book. You don't have to think about the ex expansion book, right? Because that's sort of the model that I think D&D &D falls into is it's sort of the expansion, like World of Warcraft, Diablo sort of-esque mm. models of business. And this sort of microtransaction, modular, versatile, can like push into other genres, spaces, styles of play, I think could be very effective going forward because it's also kinder to a person's wallet, right? Most expansions are priced around the $50 to $100 mark, depending on the game we're talking about. Whereas in this modular sense, like, while it may not be as explosive in revenue for you as a creator, it could create very powerful longevity, which is the true goal of any business. It's not the short-term, but the long-term goals, right? So to create this sort of modular business model is, it, in my opinion, can be powerful, can be very powerful. And it can be powerful because we are in an age where I think people are a little bit more, I mean, people have always been financially aware. It just depends on the relativeness of where you're coming from in that perspective. But, you know, I don't think people are, unless the game is like triple A statted or everyone's talking about it, they're not really willing to like shovel 50 bucks over to something random that doesn't have a review or doesn't have, you know, it's a dangerous world that we live in when it comes to review-based stuff. But I think it's a kinder model to the consumer as well. Yeah, I think, I think that's a big part of it for me too, is that I want it to be inviting to folks to, to be able to buy whatever they're comfortable with and so that they can still play the game and whatever works for them. And I'm not going to ask them to blind out of, out of a leap of faith, pay me $50 and hope that my game is good. Right. I hope that mm -hmm. if I give them a core concept that they agree with, then they can find the things that are interesting to them and are in line with whatever makes sense for them in terms of what they can or are willing to pay rather than me saying, if you want this, you're going to give me the other 25 bucks. <laughs> Otherwise you're getting nothing. Right. Like I don't, I don't no. want that. I don't want that to be the case. I think that's, I think that's a cool point. I think that's interesting. And another sort of benefit that maybe I wasn't even perceiving at first when I was doing it, but you've helped bring that to light. So I, I appreciate that. Thanks. I'm just here to, I'm just here to like drag the ideas out of people. That's perfect. Well, Spencer, I think that that brings us, to the end here, we are at uh, what looks like an hour and a half, which is again pretty good. It hasn't it hasn't beaten Adam Vass's time yet, oh, but I'm coming for you, uh, Adam. Give yeah. me on a third time. <laughs> Give me another chance. If we if we talk for like six more minutes, we could do it. But Spencer, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show again. Thank you so much for being a return guest. Where can people get in touch with you if this is their first episode? All these links will be in the show notes for your access. So I'm I'm Gila RPGs on everything. So Gila RPGs on Twitter, GilaRPGs.com is my website. That's the best place to find my printed stuff. So if you want any of my things in zines or books, that's the place to go. Otherwise, you can go to GilaRPGs.itch.io to kind of get the PDF versions. And that's also where the season pass is being hosted. So if the season pass idea sounds cool to you for light, that's where I'm I'm hosting it there. And I also have a YouTube channel that I occasionally post videos on, which is not Gila RPGs, but is instead The Gila Boy, which I, I think I've told you this story about why. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you can find that. That's I, I do design commentaries on my own stuff, and then I run a series 
a sporadic series on the psychology of, of tabletop role-playing games, where I talk about concepts of psychology and link them to the games that we play, or I do sort of a deep dive into a game that's really kind of interesting to me, and I talk about a psychological concept that's inside of it. And I've been lucky enough to even interview a few of the designers that I've talked about. So I'm, I'm working on one of those right now, and so that's, that's my sort of fun side project. I think that's, I think that's me everywhere on the Internet. Amazing. And if it all comes to fruition, there will also be links for these, I don't want to call them Kickstarter projects because we just talked about degrading from Kickstarter, but we're not out of the woods yet on that. So if all ends up panning out per this episode, uh, again, I am recording this on January 25th, but you may not be hearing this until March. So time is a concept. There will be links to those Kickstarter projects that we talked about here today as well. Spencer, once again, thank you for being on here. For everyone who's listening, I hope you learned a lot because I really did in a big way, <laughs> even about myself. I hope you learned a lot. in me bringing things out of you that you didn't <laughs> expect, right? We've, we've gone to therapy together essentially now. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I feel open and almost like I'm ready to go Super Saiyan. Anyways, nice. thank you, everyone. Say bye to the people, Spencer. Bye, people. Thank you so much for having me. This is always a blast. Have a wonderful day, everyone who's listening to this. Go have a great day. All right, that's a wrap. Spencer has a bright future with game design, and it was a pleasure to have him back on the show. All the games we talked about today, along with all the links to get in touch with Spencer, as well as links to his Kickstarter for Light and Frame, will be down below in the show notes for your access. If you like the show and found it helpful, please send a tip my way by donating on Ko-fi as well as Venmo at DYD Podcast. Or, if you are unable to provide monetary support, you can provide support at no cost by sharing this with someone you thought of while listening to this episode and leaving a review. Both of these methods greatly impact the success of this show and lets me know that what I'm doing is beneficial to designers out there. If you finally got your game off the ground and out in the world, you can tag me at JeremyGage5 over on Twitter with the hashtag IDidIt. That's I-D-Y-D-I-T. Thanks for listening, and I will catch you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.